The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, trauma, and sexual assault including specific description of an assault, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. How am I allowing myself to jump into these relationships without clearly looking at who the person is? But they're con men, they're charming, they're, mm-hmm. you know, and and I guess also when you're love-bombed, that dopamine level, that mm-hmm. serotonin level, you have a high. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you're all excited about it, and it feels good. And I, I'm such a person from the heart. The story of Dirty John may be the template for a narcissistic relationship. Deborah Newell's relationship and brief marriage with John Meehan was chronicled in a series and podcast from the Los Angeles Times and a dramatized series on Bravo and then Netflix. In Deborah's story, we will hear it all. Love bombing, red flags, control, gaslighting, manipulation, and the ways that trauma and backstories can shape our expectations and our discernment. For years, Deborah wasn't permitted to tell her side of the story. Instead, 
Her story was told as a con man who goes after a naive woman. The truth is quite different. This is Deborah's story, the story of the survivor. And instead of once again focusing on the fascination with the con, this is meant to be an exploration of the inner experience of a survivor. It's a story about systems that aren't designed to protect people from narcissists and predators. Finally, after years of making the story about Dirty John, the world gets to hear the story of Deborah. Welcome, Deborah. It's so nice to finally see you live again. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> Deborah, here's the thing. The the story of Dirty John, once we really take it, it's actually it's really the story of Deborah Newell. Yes. And perhaps maybe that's the shift that has to start right away. We've made it so much about him. On this podcast, it's going to be the story of you. We have to start putting the focus on the survivors. Yes, I so agree. Unfortunately, though, to tell the story of you, we <laughs> got to give some backstory here. Okay. So I'd like to go back. Your story is such an interesting one because so many people have heard about your relationship. In many ways, it's almost become like a terminology for anyone who's in a toxic right. relationship. Oh, you met a guy right. sounds like a dirty John. Uh-huh. It's literally become <laughs> that. Your relationship with John, I think I can honestly say maybe one of the most dissected relationships in history at this point. I agree. But as I said, we're not hearing the survivor story. And so that's why you're here, because I want everyone to hear from you. Okay. The story of you, you as a survivor. Thank you. So let's start even before your relationship. What was your past experience in relationships prior to meeting John? You know, it's so interesting. I was a pleaser my whole life. I was always trying to make people happy or trying to help them. And so I think I literally, that's who I am. And that was my role, was to help people or just to be happy and make people, you know, feel good about themselves. And so I think it goes all the way back to to that point in my life. But I was also raised by a mom, incredible mom. But being raised in a very traditional family with dad being the, the one that really worked, you know, a lot, and a very religious home, my mom taught us to be submissive to men Mm. and to make them happy, make them a priority. And, you know, that's her generation. That's where she comes from. And luckily, my dad was a great guy. Mm -hmm. And that's all I saw around me were great men. So I thought, all men are great. So as I get into my first relationship, I get married at 21. That's young. Yeah, really young. And I thought that's what you're supposed to do, date, and then get married and live happily ever after. Little did I know when he yelled at me a few times, I thought, what are you doing? Because my parents had never had an argument in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I said, what are you doing? Why are you yelling at me? And he said, what do you mean? So what I realized at that point is I had no idea about men Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I had been raised by this almost perfect man as close to perfect as you can get. He idolized my mom. He had her on a pedestal. They had this loving relationship. He adored his kids, 
We had 18 foster kids live with us. Wow. So my kids were all about love and kindness mm. and, and being the best that you can be. So you go out into the world and you have no idea what's out there. This has come up with some other folks we've talked with on this podcast. And here you are once again bringing up this theme. We want to believe that people who end up in ultimately as abusive a relationship mm-hmm. as you did, mm-hmm. you know, that that's told in the Dirty right. John story. But even before that, some of the other relationships you had been in, the easy story is, oh, she had a she's she has daddy issues, right? If you had daddy issues, you would have married a really sweet guy. I right. Mean, right? That's right. so that idea that it would be so protective if you had this sort of really, you know, loving father, mm-hmm. actually in a way, and this is again, I've seen this over and over. It almost leaves you making an assumption that isn't true, which is, well, all men must be nice. Right. And it's an interesting kind of a, a sort of a setup. And then those traditional roles can be a little bit tricky because right. then you, again, you're you're mm-hmm. really quite powerhouse businesswoman and an entrepreneur yourself now. So even that takes you off of that track. What I think is so important here about this a story like yours is that it already defies that first stereotype. Yes. So she must have had a terrible dad. And right. so she was just trying to recreate that. Not at all. Yeah. So I'm going to take us a little out of order here just because you brought it up. Okay. And while some people may know this, not all may, you just said it, I know this, that your sister was murdered. Yes. Do you feel comfortable sharing about that? Of course. Yes. Can you tell us what happened? Because that's an incredibly traumatic thing to have happen. Well, I had a beautiful sister and intelligent. I mean, she had it all. And she married her high school sweetheart. Mm -hmm. And during the years that she was married, because we came from such a great home, we didn't know there was abuse. Had no idea. We saw her unhappy at times, but we had no idea of the abuse. We did see some control issues. He didn't like her in a bathing suit. She had this gorgeous figure. He didn't like her going to the gym with me. He would sit out front. So obviously there were red flags. I'm looking at it, my parents are looking at it as, oh, he loves her so much. So while this isn't Deborah's story, it's Deborah's family story, and a universal error made by so many when it comes to controlling and obsessive partners is conflating control and obsession with love. Telling a person what to wear, sitting in a car outside a gym or anywhere, that's not love or even intense interest. It's control and almost inevitably ends up in isolation and abuse. So despite how loving Deborah's family was, there is a danger in families that see everything through the lenses of beneficence and trust and goodness. Because not only was this a dangerous setup for her sister, it was also a dangerous setup for her. We weren't looking that those are red flags. Hmm. Anyway, she was married, I believe, 13 years. It's a long time. And at one point, she decided to leave. Hmm. And when she left, she moved in with me. Hmm. And she was going to be my assistant. My design firm was taking off. And she said, I want to go pack up my house. They had been separated, I'm going to say, a month, somewhere around there. And she was dating someone famous. And so Billy was following them around. And little did we know, he was pretty 
possessive and pretty upset about what was going on. Anyway, she went home to pack up the house. They had sold the home, let her son go to his last day of school in the area. But Billy had told the 11-year-old, Shad, to go to Grandma's house that day. He had also called me that morning and said, I've got this all under control. (sighs) And I'm thinking to myself, what do you have under control? I don't get what's going on. Well, anyway, when she didn't come home to my house that day, I get a call from my mom. And my mom said, honey, Cindy's dead. Mm. All I remember is falling to the floor. I remember I was peeling a carrot, and I just dropped everything. And I was crying, and I said, what in the world happened? And she said, Billy shot her and killed her. You know, we were supposed to forgive and move on. I shouldn't say that I didn't forgive. I just needed answers. I needed to understand what in the world had happened. Why? Because it changed everything in our life. Those poor boys, she had a 5 and 11-year-old, went to live with my mom and dad, and they were told to forgive and move on. And I couldn't accept that. I thought, everyone needs therapy. Everyone needs to figure out what's going on here. This man needs to be put behind bars for years. Well, he wasn't. Mm. I know. He went to prison for three and a half years. Anyway, about 10 years, I finally decide I'm going to look into this because it was a rippling effect on our family. You know, everything changed. Along with the boys were having issues and nobody was willing to get them therapy. Mm-hmm. So I I took in, at times I took in both boys, but at this particular time I took in the youngest boy and I wanted to put him in therapy and everyone was so against it. Hmm. And I thought, don't you get it? This is such a deep-seated issue. It changed their life. I cannot think of anything more traumatic than to lose a parent who was killed by the other parent. So for X period of time, the father was incarcerated. They had neither of their parents and forever had to live with knowing father killed their mother. I I personally can't think of anything much more deeply profound in terms of loss for a child. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. A couple of things here. I am a believer, Deborah, that almost without exception, there's no absolutes when it comes to human behavior, but I'm going Mm -hmm. pretty close to 99% on Mm -hmm. this one, that almost all domestic abusers, whether that be emotional abuse, physical abuse, all domestic abusers are narcissistic. I agree. That complete and utter Mm -hmm. lack of empathy, entitlement, Mm -hmm. need for dominance, power, Mm -hmm. control, that's narcissism, okay? Yes, Billy, and I've had I've had the pleasure of reading your book, so I know some of this story too. I just I wanted our listeners to hear this story. Mm-hmm. Is that Billy had been incredibly emotionally abusive to her the entire course of the relationship, the entire course. I believe so. The reason I'm bringing this up is that there's in your family already another story of narcissistic abuse happening right. with an absolutely tragic consequence. Right. Here's the part I'm getting stuck on. Because I, and I've gotten stuck on this before, and I think it's almost like I just have to talk to you about it, is the forgiveness piece. Yeah. We're sitting here talking, and I, I literally almost have a stomach ache mm-hmm. when I'm thinking about this idea of forgiving. This is not yeah. my family, yeah. and I don't forgive this. Right. How, talk to me about forgiveness, because this is such a thorny issue for survivors of narcissistic mm-hmm. abuse. I can't get my head around it. I know a lot of folks listening to this can. So can you help us understand this? I think when you're raised in a home that believes that forgiveness 
is no matter what. Wow. Yeah. It's sort of brainwashed that that's what you're supposed to do. I didn't forgive Mm. him, obviously, for a long time. And I was the one in the family. I don't think my brother did either. I felt like I had to move forward Mm -hmm. so that it didn't eat me up. But as far as how I felt about him, I couldn't be around him. And Mm -hmm. I chose Mm -hmm. not to go to birthday parties or or events that he was going to be at because I do not believe that he should have been forgiven Mm -mm. by my parents. And then the boys are so... I don't know how to put it, but the boys are so mixed up what to do. There's this love-hate. With the boys, I can see something quite different. This is their father. Developmentally, it impacted them in a different way. That's a different conversation. But I think I was struck in the story how quickly your mother forgave him. Pretty much in the hospital, within a day of him shooting your sister, killing your sister, your mom was forgiving him. My mom is probably the sweetest woman you'll ever meet. And obviously, it worked for her Mm -hmm. in many ways. It did not work for me. I also felt my dad got cancer a year later. Oh, wow. And I really felt part of it was that he was in so much pain Mm -hmm. and had to be the good guy and the Christian man that it ate him up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could not agree with you more. How do you think, though, growing up in a family— where, I mean, this is a level of forgiveness I right. am not even accustomed right. to hearing about, right? right? This leveled up forgiveness, mm-hmm. right? No matter what, no matter what is perpetrated. There can be nothing worse than having your child killed. Oh, of all the things you 100%. can list out in the world, having your child killed, I think if we talk to mm-hmm. people in the street, 99% of them would say, yeah. absolutely not, yeah. okay? You grew up like this. Mm-hmm. How do you think being raised and indoctrinated into this forgiveness no matter Mm -hmm. what. How do you think that affected you in terms of how you went through relationships, Mm -hmm. how you saw a person's Mm -hmm. abusive or bad behavior in a relationship, and even all the way up to your relationship with John? How do you think that culture of forgiveness you grew up in may have actually harmed you in your own adult relationships. Oh, in so many ways, you have no idea. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. A lot of the men that I've dated, I always gave them the benefit of the doubt. Mm, I always say the four (laughs) most dangerous words in the English language, benefit of the doubt. Right. And they would do something wrong, and I would forgive them. Mm. Yet, I think as I—and there's a lot that goes into this, but, you know, obviously, I have a very strong belief in God. Mm -hmm. So— It never changed my belief in God. It was just that I didn't believe the same way they did. I believe that forgiveness is a process, and not everyone really deserves it. I I know this is terrible to say, but I don't feel everyone deserves it, especially if they're not remorseful over it. Did Billy have remorse? No. Oh, so he didn't have remorse? None. Yeah. I have rarely seen someone shift and dodge through a remorseless homicide with such a light sentence and was forgiven to boot. So he didn't have remorse. He only got a three-year sentence. Well, first of all, he got a seven-year sentence, Uh, but he got out in three and a half years for good behavior. (laughs) (laughs) And he took the boys back, which I was so against. I figure an very unhealthy adult does not raise healthy children. Yeah. 
It's a really important subtext of this story, though, because forgiveness is such a challenging space for survivors of narcissistic abuse of any kind. And a lot of folks struggle because they're like, how do I reconcile being a person who believes in God, who cares deeply about religion? Mm -hmm. You know, my attitude has always been God can forgive, but you don't have to. Yeah. You know, sort of outsource that job to God. That's not for you. Yeah. And you'll come to that when you do. And if you don't, if God forgives everyone, then God will forgive you too for right. not forgiving. So it's it's a very complicated space. But the challenge I I hear from you though is that you did have more than one toxic relationship as an adult. Yes. You forgave them, and in a way, it was almost permission for them to continue behaving badly because they must have known. Well, she's going to just keep forgiving me. Well, uh, I don't share this in my book, but my first husband left me when I was pregnant. Mm. And he's a, he's ended up being a great guy, don't get me wrong. Hmm. That's why I don't really talk about it that much. Right. Great relationship with my kids. We were young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're 21. You're yeah. married, yeah. So we were extremely young, and he has had so much guilt over what he did. Hmm. So he is actually a good guy. I know people say, how can he be a good guy? Well, he ended up being a pretty decent dad, and that's what I cared about. person can be a decent dad yeah. and a good guy, but maybe not your person. But I just want people to keep in mind this this forgiveness mm-hmm. theme is so important. Mm-hmm. So then there's another piece I want to ask you about, and this is something I did not know about you, and it really mm-hmm. rounded out your story. Again, only talk about this if you feel comfortable because okay. it may not be an easy thing to talk about. I had no idea about you being a survivor of assault and stalking. Mm-hmm. It was an absolutely chilling story. Do you mm. feel comfortable sharing that the oh, story of that experience? You know, I'm such an open book. I feel if if my story helps someone, it's it's worth it. You were so young. Yeah. And I read that portion of your book and I was scared. I was reading at night, mm-hmm. and it was almost like one of those things where mm-hmm. I got up and was checking oh. windows. It scared me that much. I can't imagine. When you think of how young that is, you've mm-hmm. had children, to have yeah. a daughter that age going through, right. I, it just, it was absolutely chilling. So could you share that story? Because I think people need to understand your backstory if they're going to understand the story of your relationship okay. with John. When I was, I think, 18 years old, I was working hard and going to college, and I came home one night, and my window was open. And I thought, that's odd. I didn't leave my window open. Anyway, pretty soon... I realized somebody was stalking me. I would get the phone calls. Back then, there weren't cell phones. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And I would get the phone call at my home. You're home. I see what you have on. I saw you today. And then they would call and say, I saw what you wore last night to bed. And then they started taking underwear and different garments. They'd actually come into your home. They'd come into my home. Yes. Had a private investigator on the case. They could not catch him. He was at one point calling from a payphone not too far away from where I lived, but they did not catch him. I was so paranoid to the point where I thought somebody was constantly following me. Girl, that's not paranoid. That's just being like, yeah, that's just fact. Someone's breaking your house, stealing undergarments and other items, knowing what you were wearing, not paranoid, just smart, wise. So I chose to move. And when I moved out, I moved in with my sister and her husband. Oh my. And it was fall, and about a month, month and a half had gone by at this point, and I came home before anyone else. And I think it was 5, 5.30, and it was already dark out. And I walk into my room, 
and a man grabs me, grabs me around my waist and puts a knife to my throat. And he said, lay down. And I went to lay down on the bed. I wasn't fighting him. I was, I figured it was my life if I didn't. So I went to lay down on the bed and right then and there, the door opens and it's Billy. Oh, there's an irony. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it speaks to how complicated the stories mm-hmm. in your life are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the guy ran off. We did not catch him, but it was, he didn't rape me. But obviously, I was in fear of my life. I actually, shortly after that, moved back home and stayed with my parents for a short while. And then I met my first husband. I mean, it's such a traumatic experience mm-hmm. that, that, um, to frame that, to have been stalked, right. have your home repeatedly broken into, right. deal with these phone calls, right. be assaulted, mm-hmm. believe you were going to die, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just by happenstance, right. somebody walks into the room who ironically would then go on to kill your sister. Right. So even as you play that mm-hmm. story back, this is where trauma is funny. It's right. not just that moment. Mm-hmm. In the years to come, you would think about that story. Billy came in, say, mm-hmm. you know, that traumatic piece, it's just, it, it sort of, it takes on its own story and the brain right. takes it on too. And and did they ever catch the person? No. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So your life not only has had these experiences of trauma, but making that so much worse were these two massive miscarriages of justice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A person who assaults you doesn't get caught. The right. person who murders your sister gets right. a very short prison sentence. Right. So those two themes, mm-hmm. as a foreshadowing to what was going to happen, mm-hmm. while the part with you having a great dad and sort right. of a very loving right. family life— is in marked contrast now to what would slowly become your adult life. We will be right back with this conversation. So now let's leap forward, okay? Because okay. you then establish yourself, you got married, you had kids, mm-hmm. you got divorced, mm-hmm. but you do have kids. Yes. Were you married more than once? Uh, yes. <laughs> How many times? Uh, I hate to say this, but in all five, because I kept making mistakes, jumping in, thinking they're a great guy, thinking they're going to be a great dad to the kids, Mm -hmm. or just a good human being, and I'm going to have this fairy tale. So you believed in fairy tales? I did. How were you able to believe in fairy tales after all the really difficult things that happened in your life? I have no idea. Because that's that's what (laughs) is amazing to me. And by the way, don't... I'm going to tell you now, Deborah. I'm going to call mm-hmm. you out. Don't shame yourself for being married five times. You've been married five times. Don't hate to say it. It's your history. It's your life. Well, I mean, wouldn't it be great to meet the right man and be married the rest of your life? But you know what? Life happens. Life happens. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that the more compelling, maybe five times, five times, whatever, <laughs> the thing that jumps out at to me mm-hmm. is that you still believe in fairy tales. I do. Obviously, now it's scary. I'm very... Let's put it this way. I see red flags right away. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that what we need to do is like maybe start putting the fairy tale right. person into a very red dress. So <laughs> yes. we're like, honey. Yes. Or at least have yes. to wear a red lapel. Because right. 
Yet, despite all that happens, you you were married five times. Yes. It's a tough one. We're raised on being swept off our feet. Can you imagine a Disney princess sitting down and making a pro and con list? Yeah. Wasn't that, right? Right. It was a lot of being swept away, not a lot of logic. Right. And so we're we're socialized, Mm -hmm. you know, to to either be sweepers or to be swept off our feet, one or the other. Right. Now we fast forward into John. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So people would say, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to, one of the things that, that studying all the material, reading your book, mm-hmm. watching, listening, reading, all of that. Right. Is that, well, how come she didn't figure it out? <laughs> right. They're like, oh, girlfriend's been married four yeah. times. Why didn't she figure it out? That's a criticism. Oh. That is oh, and repeatedly leveled against yeah. you. Of course. Okay. Yeah. So I don't love the criticism, I'm going to tell you, because I I really do feel it's saying, let's blame her that there's abusive people in the world. Right. Right? Because I really do believe that. You Mm -hmm. To say, why didn't you pick better, is still moving the lens onto you rather than that, why are these people abusing Mm -hmm. people? But let's play to the critics for a minute. Okay. What do you think was happening? That the especially those three relationships, and then obviously it culminated in the biggest con of all. What was happening for you that that you were repeatedly seeing this, and where people are saying, "How did you make this? How did you pick this guy after going through these other relationships?" You know, I've analyzed it to death. What I see is I was raised by this great dad, mm. and I wanted that. I wanted love. Mm-hmm. I wanted mm-hmm. somebody yeah. to yeah. just think I'm. Wonderful. I wanted someone to love my kids, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be married the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that I didn't see red flags because I was not raised to even look at that. Mm. And yes, to keep going through it over and over again, I think I had hope. Mm -hmm. You know, I had this... this hope that there really is a great guy out there and that I was finally meeting them. I wasn't looking at red flags. I honestly didn't even know red flags. Yeah, and that to me, that should be mm-hmm. taught, I think, at this right. point, alongside multiplication oh, tables. 100%. That, yeah. you know, that people are not taught red flags right. or right. often are. I mean, you were raised in a very traditional home, mm-hmm. so it may mm-hmm. very well have been, well, you just need to submit to the will of this person. Oh, yes. So how are you going to see red flags? You're right. too focused on submitting and putting your head down. How could right. you look up and see those red right. flags? But the not seeing the red flags and wanting to believe. You know, mm-hmm. hope is a four-letter word mm-hmm. when it comes to narcissistic relationships. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Because it's the hope in, I want this to be the thing I want. I want it to right. be a big love story. Right. And so you might even force those pieces to fit. Well, yeah. they did two nice mm-hmm. things. We'll ignore the hundred bad things mm-hmm. they did. They did mm-hmm. two nice things. Mm-hmm. What was your mindset? At the time you met John, you've gone through three very difficult relationships. You've had a history of trauma when you were 18. And while mm-hmm, that was a while mm-hmm. ago, it definitely shapes the life. Oh, you yeah. had the the cataclysmic loss of your sister. You had a loving family, but some really complicated mm-hmm, messaging mm-hmm, around forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You have four kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All of that together is a very complex mm-hmm, stew. Right. How did you get to the place where you mm-hmm. met John and... What was it like in the beginning? So one of the reasons I dated John had to do with my kids were raised. Mm -hmm. They were all off on their own. And I was going home to an empty house. I would work all day. I had great success in my business to where you think, why can't you have success in love? And I remember going home one day and my daughter, Jacqueline, said, 
she had come over that night, and she goes, oh, you're alone again. And I go, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> she goes, let's sign you up. Mm. So her friend, her best friend, Bernabe and Jacqueline, wrote a profile. Mm. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. I, I've gotten pretty content in some ways. I don't like coming home alone, but, you know, I've got a full life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they said, well, let's just try it out. So they signed me up for a dating website. We went through the profiles, and I think I narrowed it down to five. First guy, no chemistry. Mm. Second guy, some things happened. Third guy, no chemistry. Fourth guy, nice guy, again, no chemistry. So I thought, okay, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Chemistry is actually a very challenging and even dangerous word when it comes to relationships, even though everyone has been taught to look for it. Chemistry is this sort of unnamed, indescribable thing, unlike things that are clear and necessary for a healthy relationship, things like kindness, respect, compassion, patience. Chemistry is far less concrete. And that is why it is a problem, because often chemistry reflects familiarity or a distorted, internalized societal message around what constitutes strength or safety or connection or even a chance of working through a past unresolved conflict. But because chemistry is so ephemeral, so hazy, it can take people to tricky or dangerous places. And so I looked at my daughter. I said, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, right as I'm thinking I'm going to go off this site, mm-hmm. up pops John. Mm. And I thought, oh, hmm. He's got two grown girls. Mm-hmm. He has a dog. Mm-hmm. He's in the medical field. Mm. He's nice looking, seems intelligent. Everything he was saying in his profile, I checked off. My mm-hmm. boxes went to church. Anyway, I looked at it and I thought, oh, hmm, this isn't so bad. Maybe I'll try one more time. So I contemplated whether I was going to do it or not, and I thought, I'm going to try it. What What the heck? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> so we're talking, you know, we're texting back and forth, and he finally says, hey, can I have your number? And I'm thinking, okay, he's in the medical field. I'm So far, everything that I'm hearing from him sounds good. He's asking questions. It's not all about him. It's a two-way conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think, okay, so I give him my number, and he calls. When he was talking, there was some arrogance, but I thought, uh, oh, you know, good-looking, professional, you know, I'll ignore it. <laughs> mm, okay. Did you know arrogance was a red flag? No, mm. I did not at the time. Everyone, arrogance mm-hmm. is a red mm-hmm. flag. So, right. It really is. Yeah. You know, I think this whole idea of, of cocky is a good thing. No, I, I'm, I really want to make cocky not sexy anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just not, and I really, arrogance is a red flag. Yeah. And it should, and people say, but they have the goods. I go, they have the goods and they shouldn't have to talk about them. Right. The other thing that I didn't know was a red flag was charming. Oh, big red flag. Everyone, charming is a red flag, everyone. Uh So you're just stacking them up here. Right. Okay, charming and arrogant actually is like four stars, get out. Right. Like that, you know, add charisma and we're five stars and run. Right. So you've got charming, you've got arrogant. Mm -hmm. Arrogance didn't 
register as a red flag. No. There were other things about him that were attractive. Mm-hmm. So you meet. Yes. So where I lived at this point was in a penthouse, and I had Jacqueline there mm. so that she could meet him, and so I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he comes up, and I'm not quite ready. He's a little early. She lets him in. There are things that he said to her. Keep in mind, my daughter didn't like anyone. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say this, Deborah, I given know. your track record. Yes. I'm kind of thinking yeah. she might be really good at this red flag. Thing. She's become really good at it <laughs> <laughs> because of me. <laughs> so anyway, what ends up happening is he's there. He's in a button-down shirt mm-hmm. with shorts mm. and tennis shoes. He looked like a college boy to me. Yeah, like that's not really— Like a preppy college Right, that's kid. not so first date He wasn't yeah. really trying. They portray him in the series as very sloppy. He wasn't sloppy. Uh-huh. But he did have a dress shirt with the shorts on. Hmm. And I said, well, let's go over to the restaurant. The conversation went so well that I said, you want to come up for a nightcap? And he said, sure. And he's polite. He's not trying to hold my hand. And and one of the dates prior to that, the guy had to sit on the same side as me, touch me. You know, I'm like, ugh, get away from me. So I thought, okay, you know, he seems safe. He seems honest. He seems real arrogant. And charming, but <laughs> yeah, right. yes, <laughs> which I missed. Got a little to go. Almost like two little red yeah, flags in two, your cocktail at this point. Flags. Yeah. <laughs> so I invite him up. I go into the restroom, and I remember putting my lipstick on and walking out and glancing over to my bedroom. I'm thinking, oh, he's on my bed. Hello. Okay, now we just got <laughs> like we could ping, 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 yeah. ping, ping. Red, yeah. Lots of red flags. Like, yeah. holy presumptuous. Yeah. And I looked up at him, and we had great conversation. We had had the best time. He had one drink. You know, he didn't go overboard. And I'm thinking to myself, he looked like a pretty good guy. So I said, oh no, 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 get off my bed. And he goes, what do you mean? I go, no, we're gonna we're going into the living room. We're not we're not staying. That's not who I am. Yeah. And he looks at me and he said, But it feels so good. I'm sure it did. And I'm thinking to myself, what do you mean it feels good? It's it's a bad. <laughs> he ends up sort of giving me a hard time and getting up abruptly, walking out and saying, Fine, I'm out of here. And I'm thinking, Oh, it was such a great date. And then this happens. Mm-hmm. And so next day I go to work. I look at my oldest daughter, who mm-hmm. I worked with, and I said, I had a really good date until the end. I said, I'll never see him again. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she said, oh, my gosh, Mom, you have the worst luck. You have the worst picker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, I know, don't I? I have the worst picker. So what happened was he ended up calling that day and apologizing. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what? I was enjoying every moment. He said, I just didn't want the night to end. Will you please forgive me? I'll never do that again. I will treat you with so much respect. Did he apologize for what he did? He did. He said, I am sorry for lying on your bed and yes. being— Okay. Yes. He was very aware of what he had done. Okay. And the forgiving person that I am— mm. And because we had had such a great date before that, I said, okay. So I felt I had had a boundary, and when he crossed over it, I forgave him. I should have, at that point, realized who this man was. It's so easy for me to be sitting here in this studio with you and giving you an Mm -hmm. analysis. I wasn't Mm -hmm. in the apartment. I haven't had your life history. Yeah. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is that sort of 
boundary testing right. in an early date. Right. And a go up to your apartment, mm-hmm. you, you graciously invited mm-hmm. him up, mm-hmm. and he goes and lies on your bed. Mm-hmm. He tests that boundary, which is its own form of grooming process. Right. How far can I get with her? Right. Will she come sit on the bed with me? Right. Will she let me kiss her? You set a boundary, mm-hmm. something you are proud of and should have been proud of, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Anyone who can mm-hmm. set boundaries, especially mm-hmm. when you've had tough histories, right. I think it's really important. You did not know, though, you were in something bigger than that. No. Because now what he was finding out, okay, tested it, calling back, mm-hmm. apologizing. Mm-hmm. She's accepting the mm-hmm. apology. Right. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. Mm-hmm. And now he knew as part of mm-hmm. this grooming process, because the grooming process is really sort of testing those waters, figuring out who's vulnerable, mm-hmm. seeing how far you can push. Mm-hmm. And he now recognized like, oh, I can test and I can apologize mm-hmm. and she's going to give me a chance. Right. What was interesting to me, though, is you did say he got angry. Like you rebuffed his advances initially. You said, yes. nah, this bed thing's not working right. for me. Bye. Right. And so he didn't get his way. But then as narcissistic mm-hmm. people don't like it when they don't get their way. Right. right. But then he quickly sort of reorganized himself played the game of apologize. Let's see if this is going to work. And, you know, it's almost like a really hard question on a test, Deborah, that Mm -hmm. a teacher would put on the test, knowing that maybe only one or two students would get it right. Right. That was sort of the hard question on the test. A lot of people say, this person genuinely apologized. Mm -hmm. They took ownership. Mm -hmm. Now, more and more, I think as people get this, they're like, no, I'm not doing that. But to you, especially given what you came from, Mm -hmm. that what felt like a sincere apology to you was enough for you to say, Okay, I'll give it another shot. I thought, okay, I'll forgive him. Mm-hmm. He blew it, and mm-hmm. we'll move on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then the, the relationship's unfolding, mm-hmm. okay? Did your, did your kids like him? My son is the sweetest guy, and he just wants mom happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, mom, if, if you like him and he's good to you, that's what counts. Mm-hmm. My oldest daughter, she's just too sharp. Mm-hmm. And she says, Mom, he doesn't look me in the eyes. Yeah, sharp girl. I she mean, said sharp lady. he's hiding something. I don't. Uh, there's something about him I don't like. My Jacqueline, mm-hmm. who has this sixth sense, she looked at me and she goes, can't stand him. So two of your kids didn't like him. Yeah. Tara didn't know him yet. She didn't meet him until he was moving in. Well, I take that back. I was moving in, but I had fallen hard for him at this point. What did you fall for? Well, he loved on me. Okay. I mean, I have to tell you, I didn't know what that meant, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. until after the fact. But what he did was he would go get me coffee every morning, bring it back, have a rose that he picked along the way. He would service my cars, wash them, gas them. He would run errands. He would, I mean, he did so many things for me the days that he wasn't working. And so I would think to myself, wow, what a great guy. And I think one of my love languages is acts of service mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and affection. Mm-hmm. And he was extremely affectionate with me. He would hold my hand. He would rub my back a lot. He would take my hair all the time and twist it and just mm-hmm. things that make you feel when we would fall asleep at night, he would always have to be touching me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was things like that that I thought, wow, this is 
fantastic. What you're describing is love bombing. Right. In some ways, a lot of people, are they're waiting for you to say, he whisked me off to dinner in a city hours away, and we stayed in a fancy hotel, and he bought me jewelry. He basically, you're saying, got your car washed. And I'm so glad you you presented it that way because that kind of caregiving— because that's mm-hmm. what it feels like. Somebody's right. finding these small details right. in my life and taking care of them. Right. I think it's so important for people to understand that love bombing doesn't always look like the big, grand, mm-hmm. romantic gesture. Right. But sometimes it's just taking care of those things, mm-hmm. from putting out the trash to getting mm-hmm. the car washed mm-hmm. to picking up mm-hmm. some flowers on the side of the road. We take we feel taken care of. Right. And that can actually leave I'm not being love bombed. All they're mm-hmm. doing is they're driving me to the dentist. Right. That's not love bombing. Right. And I'll say, well, it depends on how important it is to you. Right. Because if it is, then it may very well be. Right. Gifts were not my love language. Yeah. And interestingly, he probably figured that out about you and saw mm-hmm. how you responded. Mm-hmm. Our session will continue after this break. You said it went days he didn't, and you made air quotes because people can't see, worked. <laughs> what did he do when he, air quote, worked? <laughs> well, he told me he was an anesthesiologist. Okay, so he told you he was a doctor. Yes. Okay. So he would have those scrubs on and go off to work. Okay, which is what a doctor would do. Right. So I assumed he was going off to work because he'd come back to my house that evening, or once he moved in, he would come home and share his day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about who he put to sleep and what happened and so on. So he had stories. Because I'm an honest person, I assume he's being honest with me. I didn't think, oh, I've got to check and see where he's working right. today. <laughs> right. And But I didn't see a paycheck. Okay. Okay. Nor did I ask for rent. Mm-hmm. I was doing well. I didn't care. I had rented the place that we were now in down on Balboa Island. Mm -hmm. And he did take me to dinner. He did pay for our food. He he paid for all the minors, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I should say. Mm -hmm. So I didn't question it. And when he said that he was putting his money, he had a trust for his kids. Mm. I thought, that's wonderful. I'm really Mm -hmm. happy that you take such good care of your kids. And so I I didn't really say anything for the first four months. And then, well, I'm going to go back for a minute. Went back to November, mid-November, and Tara came to help me move in. To your new place. Yes. Mm -hmm. And when Tara helped me, she had come out from Vegas with her boyfriend. She said, I don't like him. And I thought, really? I don't get it. She goes, I don't like him. And I'm like... How does she not like him? And I just kept thinking, oh, you know what? He's so good to me. My kids are going to see this, mm-hmm. and they're going to like him. It's just a matter of time. And what happened was we had gone, and it was such a minor in my eyes at the time, but we had gone to dinner, and when we were getting out, I was driving. He was in the passenger seat. Tara was in the back seat with her boyfriend, and we got out. I started walking to the restaurant. I guess she was locked in the car for a couple of seconds. I figure the child lock was Mm -hmm. on because I had my Mm -hmm. grandkids at times. And so I thought nothing of it. But to her, that was a really big deal that he wasn't, I guess, paying attention and treating her like a guest and so on. Mm -hmm. So, And it was just a matter of seconds, but that really bothered her. Mm -hmm. So 
anyway, ended up going into the restaurant. But I noticed with John, he wasn't, I think when you're dating someone, you really want to get to know that person's kids. You really, and you want to be a little bit of, be on your best behavior. Mm -hmm, And I mm -hmm. wasn't noticing him really going out of his way. And I thought, huh, these are my children. You know, I love my kids more than anything. I'm a little bit surprised by this. Anyway, got home. Tara went into my bedroom and saw that John had three pieces of clothing and his toothbrush and a a few other toiletries there, and she flipped out. Why did she flip out? Because she thought, how dare he be staying with me? Oh, she, and it was this very, it was early in the relationship, Mm -hmm. but she was bothered that he was staying with you regularly enough that he had some uh, items there. Why do you think that was? Why why do you think she was so bothered by that? Did she think it was moving too quickly? Possibly. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. She didn't tell Um, you, though, why. She just simply said, this is bothering me that he has these things here. Yes. Well, Mm -hmm. she thought he was living there, and I said, it's a few things. I see. I see. I see. Okay, got it. So she thought he might have actually literally been living there. And I said, there's a few things, but in the closet in the spare room where they were staying— He had all his diplomas, Mm. but I was getting them all reframed Mm -hmm. because some were broken. Supposedly, John had told me he had been in Iraq. He had been over there working for Doctor Without Borders for about a year. Okay. And so his stuff had gotten ruined in his storage, and so he wanted me to fix his diplomas. So those were in a few boxes Mm -hmm. in my closet. So she was under the impression that he was moving in. You can understand why she would have had that assumption. Was he? I mean, in all, like... Not to my knowledge. Not at that point. So he was not moving (laughs) in at that point. No. Were any of those diplomas diplomas from medical school? Yes, many. So they actually said, doctor of medicine, la, 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 medical school, the whole nine yards. Yes. So in retrospect, it looks like he was trying to almost bolster his, like, say, look, these are my... Because right. there was no unintentional moves with the con man, right? Every Everything's calculated. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So how many months... So now you've got three kids who doesn't don't like this guy. Right. All right. So now right. you got... You're, so 75% and it's, and of it's kids. it's killing me because I want nothing more than to have my kids happy and to fall in love and... Be with a great man. So I'm going to ask you a difficult question mm-hmm. because one of the things that stuck out to me in the story about your your fourth husband mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. that he had put hands on your on your daughter. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. When three of your daughters are saying we don't like this guy, mm-hmm. was any of that coming back to you? Like, okay, I've got, I need to just listen to my daughters because a man wants to put hands on my daughter, so I just am going to listen to them. Unfortunately, no. Hmm. Why was that? Because I saw the good in him. So I'm thinking, okay, of course they're not going to like anyone I date because of what's happened in the past. So I'm thinking he's going to win him over within time. You were hoping he was going to win him over. I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping. Mm -hmm. So you did a lot of justifying, like it's going to work out or I want this to work. Okay. So from your first date, how many months until you moved in with each other? (laughs) Two. That's quick. Two months is quick. quick. Way too quick. You know, and I mean, the reason I say that, again, all these tiny little Mm -hmm. red flags. Like, it's not Mm -hmm. like it was a red banner. These are little red flags. But quick is a bit of Mm -hmm. a... Red flag. Oh, right. percent Yes. And two months is quick. Yes. And so you you move in after two months, you get right. a new place. Right. And your daughter had already expressed some of her concerns. Do you remember 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost like, it's like, do you remember your first kiss? Dr. Mm-hmm. Romney rolls up. I'm like, do you remember <laughs> your first red flag? You know, not necessarily as romantic. But what was the first red flag that you saw that you, no matter how much hope you had for this relationship, you were like, hmm, a little bit of a pit in the stomach, a little bit of like, oh, no. Well, obviously, the first night that he was on the bed, I was extremely disappointed. And then after that, it was more disappointment because of my kids, and it killed me. I thought I wanted nothing more, again, than my kids to be happy for me and that I finally found love. And so the red flag that really was like, oh, my gosh, what did I do, would have been he was living there, and it was I think it was late February. Mm-hmm. So when he got cameras, it's on the front door. It's mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. outside down the walkway where there's a mailbox. Mm-hmm. It's in our bedroom. It's towards the kitchen. So anyway, I'm starting to wonder what's going on, and I'm just miserable because my kids don't like them. Mm-hmm. I go to the mailbox, and there's a letter from prison from some guy. I even have the envelope still. And I open it because mm. I'm like, what is going on? And I know you're not supposed to open someone else's mail, but at this point, I didn't care. So I open up this letter, and this letter says, so glad that you are doing well, that you met the love of your life, you know, on and on and on. And it says, I'll be getting out on, you know, such and such date. And I'm thinking, what's going on? He runs up to me. And keep in mind, this man has never raised his voice, oh, wow. talked back, been stern with me in any way. He runs up, he grabs the letter out of my hand, and he said, that's mine. And I'm thinking, how in the world does he know what's going on here? He's uh, been watching me on a camera. On camera. And I said, oh, what is this? And he says, you've just committed a felony. You opened my mail. So he turns it around to where I no longer am asking him the questions. He's blaming me for opening his mail. And I'm like, I'm sorry I opened your mail, but what is this? And he says, I give, I help people. In prison, I give them things. I mm. send them things. I become friends with many of the guys that I send packages to. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, I, okay, I'm sorry. And I'm thinking, but it pretty much just said he was in jail. Okay, so the letter, a bit of the letter you read, right. indicated that this was not a prison volunteer program, right. that this had happened because that he had been in prison. Right. So obviously, I have questions at this point. Sure. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, what did I do? And I'm thinking, what is wrong with me to where I have fallen for this man? Mm. So in this sequence here, we witness so many elements of a narcissistic or toxic relationship. He sets up surveillance to monitor her. She reads a letter that is unsettling, and instead of talking with her about what it says, he makes it about her committing a felony and that she is a bad person for that, which really reflects blame shifting and gaslighting. Then, as the topper, he shapeshifts again into communal narcissism and makes it about this idea that he is a prison volunteer. In retrospect, we can see how silly and implausible all of what he is saying is. 
But while it is happening, survivors feel like their head is spinning from jumping between shock, accusations, and bizarre narratives. And so, anyway, I called my nephew Mm -hmm. because John hated my nephew and my nephew hated him. And there had been a few incidences that had taken place. And I said to Shad, I said, Shad, I don't know what I've done. And he said, what if I told you that John was never in Iraq? Would you still love him? And I said, uh, yes. Wow. He says, what if I told you that he's not in the medical field? I said, what do you mean? He goes, what if I told you he was in jail? And I'm like, what? All of a sudden, I get this call from John. He said, you're at Fashion Island. And I was. I'd walked over to Fashion Island, Mm -hmm. which is very close to us. And I'm thinking, how does he know this? And that night, he was supposed to be going in for back surgery the next day. But John gets a bowel obstruction. Hmm. This is March 5th, I believe. Mm -hmm. And we've been in a fight. And it's our first fight. Hmm. And he's calling me names, calling me fat, things that, you know, are just uncalled for and sort Mm -hmm. of mean. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? He knows where I'm at. He knows some of my texts. He's the letter. And I'm thinking, I I did it again. Mm. It's interesting to me is you're saying things like, I did it wrong again. I did mm-hmm. it again. Your initial language is of mm-hmm. self-blame yeah. versus this is a bad guy. Well, no, I knew he was a bad guy. Right. But but the more you go to self-blame, the more likely you get into a cycle where you're going to get more stuck. Yeah. So he's in the hospital. He's angry at you. Clearly, he's stalking you because he knows where you're at. So he's put some form of a tracker on phone or car or whatever it may be. All of the above. All of the above, of course. All the above. Yeah. Which now he's in the hospital. I've decided to, he went, he took himself to the hospital. And then I think I had 43 text messages, get here right now, get here, get here, Mm -hmm. get to the hospital. I need you. I need you. And these went on and I thought, I can't, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling guilt that I'm not there because I'm married to him. At the same time, I'm like in shock. I've Mm -hmm. just found Mm -hmm. out things that I had no idea. So I ended up going to the hospital the next day, and he's completely out of it. I decide to take his phone, and I've watched him type in a password, 78787. So I knew that was his pass password, mm-hmm. and I thought, I'm going to open his phone and look at it. As I'm opening up his phone, and he's completely out of it, they have him, you know, drugged up, I'm looking girls. I'm looking at text messages, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. Wow. I'm seeing old girlfriends. I'm seeing girls, him saying, babe, I can be there tomorrow. You know, things that I'm like, so I'm screenshotting them Mm -hmm. is what I'm doing. And then I leave. I didn't stay. Went home. My kids come over and they said to me, mom, we just got everything back from a private investigator. Wow. I literally, I was in shock. I sat there and I thought, this is crazy. Um, What am I going to do? I thought, he's got all the information on me. He has every password. He's even on bank accounts. He knows everything about me. He has cameras, trackers, even cameras at work. And I thought to myself, and I married him. Thank you for listening to part one of my conversation with Deborah. Here are my takeaways from this conversation. The saying... 
that he looks so good on paper may be a red flag in and of itself. People who look good on paper may have secured certain societal benchmarks, a certain job, education, family life, preferences, appearance, or even just someone you know your friends or family may admire or approve of. But the problem is that once a person looks good on paper, there is a tendency and temptation to let down our guard and miss the red flags. A con or a grifter knows what looks good on paper, so they will always be able to create a persona to draw in their next target. Next, in Deborah's case, her narcissistic relationship moved fast, and they married quickly, which isn't unusual. However, some folks may say their relationship with a narcissistic person actually moved very slowly, for example, waiting years for a commitment. Perhaps the main takeaway is that the relationship always moves at the narcissistic person's pace, not yours whether that is fast or slow. And if you question the pace, you may be gaslighted or your commitment or your agenda doubted. Pacing matters in a healthy relationship and feeling heard about that pacing matters as well. Ultimately, in any narcissistic relationship, they always set the speed. Next, I actually believe that traditional value systems like marriage and traditional family structures are important to consider when thinking about some of the dangers of narcissistic relationships. Expectations around traditional gender roles and the pressure to keep your feelings and your private business private make people more vulnerable to getting stuck in narcissistic relationships. So many people who end up in emotionally abusive, narcissistic relationships will say, I don't get this. I grew up with a strong family, strong morals, strong values. I knew what was right and what was wrong. Alas, what can end up happening is a traditional value or moral system around something like living together can backfire because the morality may eclipse your focus on red flags and create a rush to get married. In Deborah's story, the messaging that living with someone was some sort of sin meant that relationships would move too fast, commitments were made too fast without considering uncomfortable behavior that was happening. Traditional value systems do not make allowances for toxic people, red flags, or our instincts that something isn't right. And then, once a person finds themselves in that hasty marriage, these traditional value systems make it hard to get out because of stigmas against divorce or single parenthood. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Devasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara De La Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donahue and Calvin Bailiff.